Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Hi, you're listening to After Party Pod. I am your host, Anna David. It's a podcast all about addiction and recovery. It's a part of After Party Magazine, the best website out there about addiction and recovery. I happen to have created it. That's the truth. So going to launch right into it. I am so excited about today's guest, and it kind of came about in the greatest way. His name is Joe Polish. Say hi, Joe. Hi. Nice to be here with you. Well, and so I will give a tiny bit of background. First found out about Joe through Tommy Rosen, previous podcast guest, amazing guy, recovery 2.0 guy. And I started to get, he sent out a newsletter, I think about the documentary. And I was like, wait, who is this guy? Start Googling madly, start learning the most interesting things, send you a random message on Facebook, basically saying, I need to know you. And then... I realized that we have a mutual friend, which is my brother's fiance. And so I say to her over Christmas, hey, do you really know, you know, Facebook, you know, do you really know this guy? And she's like, oh, yeah, I do. And I said, I think my Facebook message is going to get drowned out, you know. And she goes, it will. Let me do an email introduction. And yes. she did. And here we are. And here we are. And you have accomplished so much. And since I'm now obsessed with the kind of work that you do, it is like, it. it I really get it. I didn't get it. I didn't get like being, anyway, we're going to get into it. So tell people who may not be familiar with you what you do. Well, I mean, in, what I do is I try to bumble my way through life and try to increase my uh, level of consciousness as I go along. Uh, because that's you know part of I guess the, my, my human process. What what I do for a living, which is usually you know what most people know, is I help build better entrepreneurs. Uh, I started out uh, as a dead broke carpet cleaner, living off credit cards, just a few years after I got sober from being a horrible uh, drug addict. Uh, and in the process, I was just trying to figure out how to have a career and how to make a business work doing very hard manual labor, not having any earthly clue on how to generate business and, and working my ass off and, and actually paying money to go broke living off credit cards. And I learned marketing back in uh, 1992. I was first exposed to it by reading a marketing newsletter. And then I took... I apologize. There's hair on the microphone. I'm disgusting. No, it's actually no. lint. I don't think it's hair unless you got some weird sort of cat or something. I do have... A, she's not weird. I'm completely <laughs> offended. Well, but I, I mean, is, no, does true. a cat like, use, like the cat rub up against the microphones? my universe. <laughs> Whatever she wants to do, she does. So I think... Yeah, I assume this has to do with her. This is the funniest this thing ever. Funny. I wish everyone could see this in person. I mean, it's it, not as disgusting as we're making it sound. <laughs> so we have mics that are covered... Like, it doesn't look like they're cats on the end of our... <laughs> mics 
bit of very cute hair. Totally. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so basically what I do today is I, I run the highest level um, marketing group uh, in the world uh, called Genius Network. And my world consists of charging a lot of money uh, to, uh, you know, very successful business owners, many of them that are... Here uh, today where we are. Yeah, yeah, where we're at and we're in Beverly Hills right now for an event for, with one of my clients, uh, Peter Diamandis, uh, who's the founder of the XPRIZE Foundation in Singularity University, and I have people like that. And, uh, you know, we teach a lot about just uh, how to reduce human suffering. I mean, my main goal, which is very similar to yours, you know, it's like sell people what they want, give them what they need. Yep. The stuff I do is teach people how to make more money because I, you know, I'm, I'm a convert of my own system. I never thought I would ever teach anyone. I was incredibly introverted growing up and shy and never thought I would ever talk to someone now you know I run one of the biggest connection networks on the planet which is funny coming from a guy growing up that was completely disconnected I didn't know how to really establish uh, strong relationships and you know I mean yeah I don't it's really weird but today I just focus on uh, you know the the very best things that will allow a business owner to uh, do better be better um, how to uh, connect with, uh, you know, I always think of marketing as, as storytelling, and I mm-hmm. think of selling as influence. And, and if we can help people be more uh, persuasive and more influential, they'll uh, have, you know, they'll have greater impact of getting what they want. And if you teach people how to tell a better story, they can enroll people robotically without having to meet a bunch of people face to face. And I mean, you're a perfect example of this. You write books, you're doing a podcast. I mean, you're, you're, you're getting messages out in a way that, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, your, your, your work is impacting people. So what I did is I figured out how to make my business work. And then I started teaching other people that were in that same position. And I've done it with tens of thousands of, wow. of business owners. And what I'm trying to do right now, which is one of the reasons we're sitting here talking into these microphones with cat hair in the end of that is, yeah, is, uh, you know, we're just trying to share what we learned in our own lives, and hopefully that helps uh, other people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you are being a, a little bit modest. Um, you, you know, you have books, you have many, many things. How long, how do you go from, I mean, you read a book? <laughs> I've, then- I've actually, no, what, what ended up, how, how I learned what it is that I, uh, that I've done is I've I've read over a thousand books. I've spent uh, well over two million dollars on my own marketing education. I have uh, gone to more seminars, uh, personal development courses, uh, uh, rehab, <laughs> therapy. I've done more things than almost anyone I know. Right. I mean, I'm just a I am I have an insatiable appetite for trying to get better. Now, uh, I in a lot of ways I was using a lot of this to escape, you know, even the pursuit of knowledge sometimes. You know, I think people would be better served to read less books and master the ones that are the most impactful. Mm. I, and, and I do believe that unlearning is more important than learning. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know. They teach us all the wrong stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of it. Totally. No, they do, it, it's true. And so, you know, school's never out for the pro. So as an adult, you have to kind of create your own school. And so, I mean, even with what I do with my group, Genius Network, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's, and it's not cheap. I have a $25,000 person group and I have a called Genius Network and I have another group called Genius X, which is $100,000 a person. So, I mean, these are not like inexpensive things, but they're re- very much structured, uh, very strategic and, and very much about certain people will pay a check for who's not in the room, not who's going to be in the room. And so I, I really try to, uh, today I really try to, 
I make that money, though. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say this, and I'm not going to be one of these people that's like, oh, I just want to give to the world because the world's been so great to me. I, I am a capitalist. Yeah. I mean, I, I do believe that, you know, uh, business is solving problems for a profit. And if I can solve someone's uh, problems or I can lead people to the solving of their problems, I, I, I have every right in the world to, as does anyone that's listening to this that does that, to, to make money. And I do believe that all money earned ethically is a byproduct of value creation. So I'm a big fan of money. I'm a big fan of free market. I'm a big fan of, you know, going out there and getting paid for what it is that you do. And if you work harder and are more strategic uh, and, and, and are just more effective, you have earned the right to make more than someone who is not those things. Now, that being said, I also, if I had all the money in the world uh, and I could like decide where it goes, I would put it towards addiction research and treatment because I think it's the greatest uh, problem on, on the planet. So one of my passion projects uh, is Artists for Addicts, like mm-hmm. artists with an S for addicts.com, that my mm-hmm. partner John Butcher, uh, who you know is a very successful uh, guy, uh, we've decided to partner and create a platform to uh, sell art, and we're right in the infancy of it. So where this thing's going to be a year from now, two years from now, I mean, we have goals and visions of what we want to do with it. But it could totally change, and we're selling art as a way to bring in revenue uh, and, and to take that revenue and put out education into the world and find the best forms of treatment that have efficacy and share those with people, and hopefully uh, we will put people through uh, many forms of treatment. And, and that's what we're trying to do right now. So the art sold is only by the people that are in the documentary or, or only oh. by sober addicts? Or Oh, right now as we're doing this, this interview, uh, this podcast, it's we only have one piece of art, the first one, which is uh, Black Star that we created, which was also the name of David Bowie's uh, album uh, mm-hmm. before David Bowie died. And it's got 81 uh, famous people that were addicts many of them died from their addiction and part of it is is to is to basically share the story of how addiction can take down anyone even the people that the world admires that they they look at their beautiful paintings they look at their beautiful art on movies and writing and sculptures and you know you name it i mean we don't think of artists just as like painters and sculptors but writers and entrepreneurs and entertainers and, and so we've got everyone from you know jim morrison to Marilyn Monroe to Robin Williams to, uh, you know, uh, Kurt Cobain. Amy. So when you say you have their art, what is that? No, mean? no, like the first piece, Black Star. Yeah. Like people watching this, they actually want to see because it would be really, it's, it's way better to, to just watch the video trailer yeah. on artistsforaddicts.com yeah. is go watch the video trailer. But we created uh, this, this beautiful piece of art. John Butcher did it. And that's what we're selling right now. We're selling uh, uh, prints of this, limited edition prints. And we believe it's going to be a real investment. Not, you know, we can't claim and say, oh, yeah, if you buy this, it's going to be worth, you know, 10 times this. We can't say that because we don't know. Yeah. However, we're hoping that's the case. And then what we're going to do is we're going to – we have more artists right now and more people that are saying, can we give you art? Can we donate art? Can we put art on your platform? Can we put it on T-shirts? Can we – I mean, we don't even – we're just trying to build a company right now. And it's a passion project because it's not my core business. So we started it with me and, and John and a couple of other people just funding it out of pocket. Right. And so what, what we're hoping, though, 
is that becomes one, not the only, one of many vehicles that we do to actually uh, help change the global conversation about how people view addicts. Because our, our goal right now is to create a documentary and a series of documentaries, which will also be shows, which will also be podcasts, a whole, whole variety of stuff, just to get more people talking about this and uh, all of the addicts and the family members of addicts that are out there, you know, finding people that they can, you know, resonate with that understand what's going on and there's a doorbell ringing i can't tell if it's coming from my room or or next door okay we'll find out and like i told you this is so cash that like we could practically have that person come in and yeah we'll, we'll have him jo- join yeah join us maybe we can have vacuum vacuum the mics maybe <laughs> he hates my cat let the record no show. actually i don't i just had to kind of go with this because you said it because it's so damn funny it's hilarious that you know he may have i'm just gonna drop this been texted by tony robbins five minutes before we started this but he doesn't <laughs> like cats yeah so let the record no show. can i tell you something which is true i, I don't dislike cats I actually I, I like animals i'm allergic to cats and when i had when i was a dead broke carpet cleaner one of the hardest things would I, before oh, yeah. i ever i would have to i live in arizona so i would clean if anyone's ever been to arizona in the middle of summer, it is grueling. It is hellish temperatures. I mean, there are days where it has gotten as high as 126 degrees. Right. I mean, it's boiling hot. You could, And it's true. You can fry eggs on a sidewalk in Arizona. And so when I had my carpet cleaning business, um, I would clean carpets 10 hours, 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours a day. And before I learned marketing, I would go to apartment complexes, which were the dirtiest, grungiest uh, places, but they're the ones that would give me consistent work. And sometimes I'd be cleaning carpets with a little portable steam cleaner, three stories up. I'd have to lug this thing up stories because there's no elevator. And it was, you know, it's heavy as hell. Uh, and, and I'd have to run an extension cord uh, down to the bottom floor because sometimes they didn't have electricity in some of the units. And some of these units were like filled with cat urine and I'm allergic to cats so I would be cleaning carpets in the middle of summer with no air conditioning it would be like doing hard manual labor in a in a steam room and if you are allergic to cats you start wheezing and you can't breathe so if you could and I literally did that shit for a couple of years that's how hard it was but I was driven I was like damn it I I got to figure out how to make this little entrepreneurial fantasy that I have a reality uh, and I did. And so given the choice of uh, eating or starving, uh, most people won't starve unless they don't know how to get food or cannot find any mechanism. And I do equate that similar to uh, addiction recovery. I mean, yeah. you've got to have a hunger for it. There has to be that part of the human spirit. And so, you know, when you ask, how did I do all of this stuff? Honestly, I don't even know half the time. I mean, people are like, you know, what are the, the keys to success? It's like, shit. I mean, there's a lot. You know, hang around smart people is one of them. You know, st- uh, read their books. It, you, different ways to learn. You can learn through the school of hard knocks and just go and get beaten up and bloodied out there and try to figure it out on your own. Second, you can learn through the experience of other people. You can uh, read their books. You can go to their seminars. You can hire them. You can hang around them. You can become friends with them and just listen. I mean, you know, ask the right questions or, or just ask questions and you'll discover that. And the third and most effective way to learn something is you teach it to other people. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to really get good at marketing. So I was like, well, if I had success with this and then I taught it to someone else. You'll really know it. Yeah, you have to. You yeah. almost get better. And so I, I actually started yeah. doing that. And then I started teaching other carpet cleaners and I became the top training guy in the organization of the world for the professional cleaning and restoration industry. Even to this day where we still are, I, I own that company. 
company, although I'm, I myself am not super involved in it in terms of operations because I have teams of people that, you know, help with my different companies that I own. Do you think it's ironic that your last name is, is Polish? Oh, so, yeah, I got made fun of the name Polish uh, in, in high school uh, and grow all, all throughout growing up, and then I people think I legally changed my name, yeah, which, yeah, I, which yeah. I didn't, you know, and half the family literally says Polish. Right. So Polish just, you know, works. And it, it, we're Italian, actually. The story I've heard is it used to be Polisi, and when the family came over from, uh, I guess Sicilian is predominantly the Italian part of my, my, uh, you know, my background. It, they changed the name to make it easier when they were assigned names when they were coming across mm. the country. So Polish, although I'm not Polish and you yeah. know part Irish and you know different all kind. I'm a mutt. There's all kinds of different things. But, have you done? Uh, oh God, I'm getting so sidetracked. But have you done 23 and Me? I feel like you have. Oh, I've had my my yes, and I've had my human genome mapped twice. Once by Craig Venter, who's the first person to actually map the human genome. Actually, uh, he might even be here this weekend. So okay, we got to get into your addiction. <laughs> so so your personal experience was when did you first start using when did it get severe well when here's where it where it stemmed from my mother died when i was four mm. and uh my mother was a former nun so she left the convent because she had gotten ill not because she had lost faith or anything and she wrote some of the very first books teaching children how to read using the phonetic method uh, so i have to almost say that just to give her credit because she was uh, she she had a huge impact she, millions of children learned how to read using my mother's books and so my father was then broken very broken i mean he lost the love of his life and so my entire childhood we moved every two years to different uh, small towns and right and i was a very shy scared timid kid um, and I, I never had any sort of self-confidence instilled in me so I just remember just being fearful I would and I'd go to church and, and the Catholic Church wasn't very nice to me I met some uh, not very good people there mm-hmm. and uh, and basically I was molested as a kid um, several times and I would get paid money not to say anything about it and that uh, from that point on a- ages eight nine ten I, some of it I can't even remember um, I uh, had had instilled some sort of belief in me that I was worthless. I was a piece of shit. I was tainted. I was, you know, there, there's nothing pure about me. So I had this bizarre interaction uh, around sex and sexuality. And my father never remarried. Uh, he couldn't. He, he, he After my mother died, he was just a really hurt man. And it was sad. And he was a locksmith. So he would, you know, we never made a lot of money. Uh, we lived in trailers, uh, you know, uh, most, uh, ha- half my childhood. Uh, but he would save, you know, so he was, he was like a hoarder in that regard. Uh, we, we didn't starve. I mean, he worked his ass off. He tried to do the best he, he could, but he didn't have personal development. He didn't know how to cope with the pain. And so I have an older brother who's, you know, four and a half years older. And so I don't remember hardly anything about my childhood having that much joy. I mean, not that we didn't have it because, of course, you know, we're kids. I mean, there were definitely moments, but most of my perspective of it was uh, more miserable than enjoyable. And so uh, around the age of, uh, I think the first time I probably smoked pot was, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. But I really started doing drugs when I was 16 years old, starting with drinking and smoking pot and then uh, taking speed and then eventually snorting uh, coke and crystal uh, you know, taking LSD, mushrooms, and by the time I was, uh, you know, 18 years old, I started freebasing, 
And in my worst state, I was freebasing almost daily, of course, having to deal drugs in order to uh, support my habit because everyone I knew was doing drugs. You know, yeah. when you're, you know, you, you tend to develop relationships with the people that support the, the lifestyle that you're in. And if you're a businessman, you learn how to sell to them. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there are some very smart business people that actually started in criminal behaviors, believe it or not. Yeah, it's, it's, I could see that. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Especially sober ones. Or, you know, former drug addict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, here's the thing which, you know, look, we all know that addicts lie, they cheat, they steal. They're, they're, They're difficult individuals. And what they also have to be is fucking resourceful. Yeah. You know, you have to be a resourceful person to live a double life. Yeah. In order to kind of put on the front so you know there's uh, you know it's it's, it's there, there's skills that you learn no matter what you do and so uh in my worst state i weighed 105 pounds from freebasing cocaine and that was uh terrible and i looked in the mirror one day and i just looked like a skeleton and i just needed to get the hell out of there and and, and probably one of the turning points was i was living with uh, my brother uh who was also you know doing drugs and this other roommate, and uh, he busted into the uh, condo, like apartment condo that we were living at at the time in in Mesa, Arizona, and he was a um, uh, just a bad addict, and he had a, a a can of lighter fluid in one hand, and he literally comes into the house, and I'm there with one of my friends, we're just watching TV, and he starts, he'd like bust in the door, and like literally the moment he went, he's just screaming and starts spraying lighter fluid all over everything all over me on the fucking floor this big guy and I've got lighter fluid dripping down my forehead and he holds up a mess I'm going to torch this place I'm going to torch this place oh, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm like talking him down saying put it down because had he wow that you was uh, busting in now. yeah Jesus I mean I'm telling this story and I, know, here back. I know so yeah. re- reliving it yeah we, I, we have really noisy neighbors in the in the room next door but anyway but at least so not torching yeah and, th- and this is a nice hotel too this is a four yeah, seasons yeah, hotel not, so you think around with this hotel yeah, yeah exactly so anyway going back to this story so uh i talked this guy from putting the lighter d- uh down and he's like a nut i mean he's just lost his mind it's because he's just he's just he was messed up and so at that point i was like i have got to get the hell out of this environment and this lifestyle or i am gone i mean i just can't do this and and it was uh within a week later i literally packed up all of my shit and drove to new mexico in a beat-up pickup truck and uh and got sober and when i say got sober uh it was horrible the first six months the withdrawals uh, you know having to take you know aspirin and advil and various things every day just from the headaches and uh, I ended up yeah I mean I, I can tell the long version of this but I won't I mean I just uh, I got clean and uh, I ended up getting a, a job uh, at a well I started selling gym memberships in a health club after a few months of getting the drugs out of my system I applied for a sales job ended up getting a job in a gym uh, called Tom Young's Fitness mm-hmm. in in, New, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, mm-hmm. and I I basically worked there and did really well selling. Mm-hmm. I, I you know, but I I removed myself from all of the access to drugs and the environment and the people, and it was tough. And I met a guy there that ran a mental hospital there, and I ended up getting a job at a mental hospital. And, and one of the things that I ended up doing was driving uh, some of the the patients to AA meetings and NA meetings, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous. And I would sit in on these meetings, not realizing later in life how valuable those would become. Because Even though you worked sober. Yeah, but see, my core addiction was not drugs. I thought it was. 
what ended up becoming my core addiction was sex addiction. Yeah. Yeah, because what happened when I was molested, you know, when it comes to sexuality and being turned on, you know, and to use, you know, Pat Carnes' languaging, you know, Pat Carnes is one of the top sex, he's considered the top sex addiction doctor in the world. I've done, you know, interviews with him. People can type in my name and his name and watch my interview with him on YouTube and whatnot. And then Rob Weiss, who's, you know, I've also interviewed. I mean, these guys are now friends of mine. Uh, But, you know, he talks about an arousal template where, you know, when you're introduced to sexuality uh, and it's done in a very, um, you know, be it an inappropriate or abusive or whatever sort of way, you know, it kind of alters how you interact with sexuality. And with my father never remarrying, I never grew up looking at sex as an intimate act of love and oneness. I looked at it as something you do to get off. I mean, it wasn't even until my mid-30s where I could ever even be sexual and not feel shame and guilt about it. So, and when I was molested, I would get paid for not saying anything and so it wired in my head that sex is bad and dirty unless you pay for it mm-hmm. so i literally would go to massage places i would hire uh, escorts i would you know prostitution and that became something that i uh, did and i felt so shameful and so just fucked up about it um, and i didn't have any way to explain it and i didn't say anything about it for for years and then when i started going to you know, uh, meetings for, uh, you know, SA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA, um, it started to make sense. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I fast forward to, to today, I mean, I've learned a hell of a lot about <laughs> sexuality and intimacy and and most people that are addicts have uh, sex problems because uh, it's a connection issue. And mm-hmm. my favorite de- definition of, of intimacy was uh, given to me by a guy who uh, was in his 70s who sponsors uh, people with sexual addiction. And, and even calling it sex addiction conjures up, oh, pervert or, you know, person that wants to have sex all the time. Whereas, you know, a lot of uh, sexuality for me was it would it would be hard for me to be sexual with someone that mattered. Mm. Uh, and not that I ever mistreated people because I don't really, you know, I, 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 and I say this with as much sincerity as I can, you know, have is that I, I hope I never you know, did anything abusive to somebody. I, I never perpetrated anyone. I've never wanted to hurt anyone. I don't, you know, that's not ever been a place I come from, thank God, because most people that hurt other people, they themselves were hurt. Yeah. Uh, I've always had a deep empathy. Uh, the, the definition I heard of intimacy from this guy, he said, uh, intimacy is a mutual exploration of a shared safe place. Mm. Abuse is anything that takes away the safe place, and addictions are what we do to make ourselves feel good when we don't have a safe place. And, mm. you know, the the thing is, is once I was abused, uh, the world never felt safe anymore. Mm. It just didn't. I just didn't have safety. And, uh, and, and, and I've always sort of walked through my life during the darkest times where, you know, like there's this dark cloud just waiting to rain on me at any point in time. And if things got good, it's only going to be good for a temporary time. It's going to start to suck. People are going to leave you. People are going to start to abandon you. And so even though I quit doing drugs, I had this, uh, these behaviors that I couldn't explain and that were filled with shame. But the appetite of an addict is like the Guns N' Roses, the original album, you know, Appetite for Destruction. Mm. That you, you know, you, 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 it's like a Pac-Man video game that craves shame and guilt mm. and chaos, not harmony and peace and love and nurturing. It's like, 
you you have an appetite that only wants junk food and junk thought and and, and, and toxicity and danger, and that was the pursuit, you know. Uh, and I c- would have uh, surprisingly, I don't know, because I I mean I was always afraid of how to interact with uh, a female and how to ask someone out. It was always tough. I would I would uh, somehow manage to develop relationships uh, with beautiful you know, girlfriends and that I found to be beautiful. And there would be a period where I just couldn't be sexual. I would, you know, I wouldn't desire them. And Mm -hmm. I I couldn't understand like, what the hell is wrong with me? Mm -hmm. And part of it is because there was this part, every time I cared about someone, they would leave. You know, my mother, uh, she didn't purposely abandon me, Mm -hmm. but in the the mind of a four-year-old child, your mother is gone one day. What does, that looks like abandonment. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So... And so did you, God, you just said so many things that I wanted to chime in and I could, I literally couldn't because it was so good. Um, but, I mean, not good, well said. No, I, None I, I of know, these things are, I know what you quote, mean. good. Yeah. But, but so were you able to find a way through that by... Um, through 12-step uh, or therapy yeah. or a combination? Here's what happened. I started going to 12-step groups, and it really made a big difference. And then I started being a trusted servant where I would actually run some of the meetings. And when you're volunteering and when you're be, of being of service to somebody, uh, it really dramatically uh, uh, helps with, um, with, with recovery. And I ended up having a girlfriend that we were together for uh, six years. We should have stayed together only one year, and it got very toxic. And I won't go into the whole long, drawn-out details. Uh, and I, I don't think I've ever – I don't know if I've ever told this story. I'll, I'll give the quick version of this. On, uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly. Uh, I've shared Exclusive. it with – Yeah. Um, we had a child together. And uh, I was go- when I was going to leave her, and uh, I ended up staying with her and uh, raising this child. And we ended up splitting up uh, halfway through because it was just an intolerable relationship. But the only reason we were there was because of the child. And so um, I'll, I'll probably write about this in a book <laughs> at yeah. some point. Um, to tell the longer version of this, but I ended up, uh, I, she wanted to move out of state. I didn't want her to move out of state. I joined a father's rights group to try to see what I need to do to make sure she didn't leave with my child. And they, they're like, well, when it comes to, you know, paternity, uh, you have five strikes against you when you have a penis. So you got to know the law and what do you want to do? And I said, well, I just don't want her to take our child away. I want to raise the child together. And um, basically, um, they're like, all right, you need to learn the law. You need to read all of this stuff. You need to take a DNA test. I said, well, I don't need to take a DNA test because I know I'm the, the father. The child bonds with me more than the mother. It was really weird. And anyway, to make a long story short, I, ha- I, was, I, I just started to have this successful, thriving business. I had licensees in all kinds of different industries. I was this young, hotshot entrepreneur who also had this double life of, like, acting out, you know, that I was trying to recover from. And I was doing really well during the period of this child's, uh, you know, first year of his life, going to meetings on a regular basis, doing the best I could. And, uh, you know, five days before his first birthday, I find out through a phone call that comes into me uh, that I'm not the biological father. And it just fucking crushed me. It just crushed me. And I offered to adopt the child if she would sign away all paternal rights because I had at that point already bonded with this child and I was now fearful of what would happen. And uh, then, uh, you know, she didn't want to do that. I talked to her the next day and, you know, offered her $100,000 if she would let me adopt. She, you know, the child and signed away paternal rights. She, you know, she didn't want to do that. Uh, 
and sorry, I'm a, I could use a Kleenex right now, but anyway. I'll get you one, but I'm no, it's okay. In by don't, don't worry about it. We'll just, I'll just sniff here, and if anyone hears me sniffing, that's He's not that's doing why. coke. Just so, yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so, um, that was the hardest, most difficult thing I ever had to endure. So here I was with all of this great shit going on business-wise, but my personal life had instantly become a Jerry Springer show. Mm. And it was the hardest thing. And the only thing that made the pain go away was to go out and sleep with, uh, you know, sleep with uh, women mm-hmm. and just act out sexually. And that uh, ended up me turning my company over to uh, the running of it to a a client who I thought was a wonderful uh, person. And this lady ended up embezzling somewhere between 50 to $200,000 from my company. I then ended up meeting another very toxic sort of uh, person that I got into a relationship with. And uh, after three years of some serious wreckage, uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, I mean, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, the one commonality here in all of this is me, Mm -hmm. you know, what the fuck am I doing? Like, what is is my picker mechanism so bad uh, that I don't know how to, you know? And so I joined a, a high-profile group and in the early 2000s. And, um, uh, Marketing, you mean? No, no, uh, for addiction. High-profile group. Yeah, famous uh, celebrities, uh, you know, Academy Award-winning actors and actresses, uh, famous NBA players, NFL players. Uh, I mean, was it a 12-step group? No. Sort of, kind of, yeah, okay. but it was more like a therapy group for uh, people that were so well-known they really couldn't, couldn't go. I mean, some of them would go to meetings, but they would go to, like, AA meetings and stuff because they couldn't say they were, you know, the types of addicts that yeah. they were and so of course i'm not going to you no. know break any confidentiality here uh there were just these people that i would listen to their music growing up i would watch their movies i would see them on tv you know the politicians you know uh, all all sports all types of famous sports athletes and you know and i i realized that there are people that the world looks up to that are role models and that they admire that are very broken in some places and that the that addiction has no socioeconomic boundaries. And as a matter of fact, the more money that someone who's an addict has, the more access they have to their vices. Absolutely. You know, to live out whatever crazy things that their their uh, thwarted desires can, can conjure up. And yeah, so, they say it takes people from Yale and people from jail. You ever heard that one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it does. And so, but it, what it did, though, is it really gave me a perspective to see this from a different way and i realized wow this is uh i didn't i I didn't have quite the perspective i have today back then but that's where it all started and so i started really working on my recovery but you know and then uh so that i I was going really well but uh behavior addictions are tricky you know unlike the whole you know the quote put a plug in the jug uh really hard to do with uh process addictions you know internet addictions which are rampant right now sex addiction gambling addictions food addictions you know all these you know this the addiction to technology uh very difficult because you know we all need to eat we desire sex uh you know hard to not live online exactly exactly And, and workaholism is the respectable addiction you know i mean a lot of my clients are addicts they just don't know it i'm getting ready to start a conference here uh, that's filled with some of the most successful, driven, 
highly addictive, compulsive yeah. individuals on the planet. Now, is it better than, you know, shooting up heroin in an alley? I mean, the fact is, no matter what the addiction is, people try to compare them. Well, better to be a, I always hear the, rather be a sex addict than a whatever. I mean, you have no fucking idea how painful it is to be a sex addict. Yeah. I mean, and, and I've met many people that are sex addicts that are some of the most kindest, caring, compassionate humans. They're not these horrible people, right. you know, although... All people, addicts and not, there are segments that do horrible things. So it's not, you know, part of the thing with, with addiction is not making someone that does bad things immediately, putting them in the box of they're bad. Yeah. You know, like bad things does not always necessarily mean badness because every person listening to us, even if they consider themselves a good human being, has done things they probably wish they had not done. Yeah, you know? well, and the, there's like an Everlast song, which I can't believe I'm quoting. I'm not even a song quoter, but it always hit me. There's like, I've seen the good and the bad and the bad and the good. I'm completely maligning the quote. But, you know, one of the first things I heard when I got sober was, you know, we're not bad people trying to get good, but sick people trying to get well. Right. And right. it's really, really true. And, you know, people who rail against 12 steps will say, you know, there's a woman who's got this whole agenda about that. And I just met her last week. And she's like, well, you know, you know you're, you're an attractive woman. Haven't you been sexually harassed in AA? And I was like, I've been sexually harassed my whole life. Right. I would say when I got to the program and, you know, they say, they say, you know, get them on, you know, get them on their feet. Get them, don't get them on their back before they're on their feet. You know, I would say I was like seeking attention and kind of being like, Oh, hi. And people are like, you're new. I got to stay away from you. So, you know, but of course there are, you know, you're just as likely to be harassed on the bus as you are there. And this, you know, misconception often from people who just, you know, God bless them, are very ignorant about the whole thing or people who have had bad experiences. I think this happens a lot. Uh, once or twice and then they go and they you know and they go everybody in that program is this way because they're you know a hundred percent of their experiences there were like that because they had two experiences there right right well here's what i would say too about 12 step people that bash 12 step groups uh first off because i hear it all the time i mean so, so do you you, yeah. you hear this all the time uh there's a great line in 12 steps which is take what you like and leave the rest and i try to apply that to everything people look i mean i can go into any sort of environment any sort of situation and i can you know if, if the the eyes only see and the ears only hear what they're looking for and if yeah. you're looking for what you don't like you're going to find it if you're looking for value you you can find it mm -hmm. and the the thing with 12 steps is hope heals and any any time you put someone into a place a situation that that offers them hope that's one thing that an addict desperately needs secondly you know i recently did an interview with my buddy tommy rosen yeah. And uh, he said, you know, imagine a world without 12 steps. If we just eradicated 12 steps tomorrow, this world would go batshit crazy. There are millions of people uh, that most people don't even know that are hooked into the community of 12 steps, the, the, the support of it. And 12 steps have done more to help people with addiction than every inpatient, outpatient, book, self-help seminar, therapist, combined yeah. from my my belief yeah uh, and most of the rehab centers uh, and there are some that are very effective and some that are shit that just exploit the hell out of people and there's a bunch of other stuff in between most of them rely on the community of 12 step in order to do assist and enhance what the, the different forms of treatment that they're that, that they're doing for people and one thing that came to me and this is going to sound 
absolutely bizarre. And part of my addiction document that we're doing, I'm recording my research. I am literally trying to find everything that has efficacy. So I'm not out there saying this is the best or this doesn't work or this. I'm just trying to find out because, you know, I can only see the world through Joe Polish's eyes. And there's a big world out there and there's a lot of brilliant people. And I'm trying to talk to, 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 to those, those individuals and find out what helped you. And if it helped you, will it help others? And so uh, one of the things that I did uh, last year as I went to uh, Mexico, because you can't legally do it in the United States, and I did ibogaine, which is uh, you know considered the world's most powerful psychedelic, and it's uh, been found when administered properly. And this is the key word, because there's a lot of people that are out there doing ayahuasca ceremonies and plant medicine ceremonies and you know MDMA things and all kinds of stuff that have no freaking qualifications to lead people through these sort of things that could really mess people up. So I, I say all of this with a giant caveat. It's not about doing this stuff, you know. Uh, it's it's about how it's done and, and the intentions behind it and how you go into it. I mean, the integration of it. And so I went and took a film crew and uh, did, uh, you know, I did um, ibogaine and I took before and after brain scans. So I'm the first person in the world to have before and after brain scans of doing ibogaine. And then I did serotonin and dopamine blood tests to see how does it affect this because I believe you know addiction is biochemical. And I had Daniel Amen, who's done more brain scans on addicts than any other brain psychiatrist in the world. And I did interviews with him beforehand, afterwards interpreting what happened to my brain. I mean, fascinating uh, sort of stuff. So I'm exploring all this. And during the ibogaine um, uh, process, which was about 12 hours, and it was horrifying yeah i mean it was so frightening is one of the most intense things that i've ever done i got this thing that came to me about 12 steps don't work i mean this was like a thought and, and i'm like and i thought well what does that even mean if you think of that question 12 steps don't work and i thought to myself there's a guy that i who's a dear friend of mine today when he came to his first meeting i 12-stepped him. You know, it's like when you're a newcomer comes, someone that's been in the program will take them to the side and kind of explain how the program works, how to interact with it, you know, uh, help them understand how to get the most benefit from the program by sharing your experience, strength, and hope. And this guy ended up staying sober longer than I did. And he's, you know, to this, meaning I relapsed, mm -hmm. you know, after, the, you know, this, this guy. And what it occurred to me is when someone says, oh, I went to meetings and meetings don't work, I always have to remind people. It's like, well, first off, 12-step groups are attendance programs. I mean, they're not attendance programs. They're step programs. Mm -hmm. So if you go to if you go to 12-step groups and you relapse or your family member relapses or you don't like it and you end up dropping out and saying they don't work, that's kind of like saying gyms don't work. Right. I mean, you ever gone to a gym and then you sat on the bench instead of bench pressing, you, you wouldn't say gyms don't work. Right. Well, they wouldn't work if you just go there and lounge. 12-step right. meetings, you know, work to the degree that you're willing to do the work and you're yeah. to access the, the tools of recovery and the people that are there and make phone calls and find a sponsor and all of these things that could happen there. But what occurred to me that answered the question when I was in this process of this ibogaine experience was, you know, there are many times when going to meetings didn't work for me but because I was there for one of my buddies, it worked for them. Right. So, do you, so you have no idea by you being at a meeting how valuable that would be for someone in early stage recovery or long term just by you sharing your story. 
it works. Someone that says 12 steps don't work, they're idiots, for one. I mean, yeah. it's an, and, and when I say idiots, I don't want to insult them like they're just dumb people. They're ignorant. ignorant it's kind of yeah. what, you, what you said earlier. And so 12 steps certainly, I mean, it's, it's, it's a preposterous sort of thing to say that these don't work. I mean, they certainly, I, I know hundreds of people whose lives would not even exist had it not been for the ability to, to go. And plus, they're accessible more than anything else in the world. So for anyone to poo-poo this, even if they're an atheist, and, uh, you know, and, and, and by the way, it's not about a religious group. A lot of people have that misconception. Yeah. There, there are 12-step there are communities that have a lot of, you name the, name the religion, there, where there seems to be a, you know, an emphasis on, on a certain belief system with the group, but no, let, let, go, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so we're having a uh, house cleaning visitor in Oh no! Come on in and just join the join the party quietly, if you could. Well, or we could just sort of wrap up. I mean, it's not that the conversation isn't insanely, arguably the best one I've ever had <laughs> on this podcast, if not live. But but I do think that we we've gotten so much, and we have so much else to talk about off uh, off recording, not yeah. off camera, that. You know, we could, you know, and it's definitely the time when I usually wrap up. I just didn't get to, like, any of the questions because... Is there anything else happen. you want me to share share for now? Because we can always do a part two in the future. We Plus, I want to I want to interview you for our upcoming podcast that will be... Yeah, absolutely. So, so, is there any last message you'd like to leave people with? Well, God, there's so many things that I would say. What, 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 I, what I would say is this, and a lot of these are things I've learned through uh, 12 steps and things that I've learned through recovery. Uh, one is that you're as sick as your secrets. Uh, you know, you've probably said that, I'm sure, mm-hmm. before. And I would never talk about the sexual stuff for the longest time because I'd be afraid of people ridiculing me or um, uh, taking that out of context and uh, that sort of stuff, but I also realize living with shame, and then as I as I I happen to be a guy that has uh, you know uh, tens of thousands of people that follow me and mm-hmm. for my business stuff, and I have a platform, and most people are not willing to talk about. You know, I'm an incredibly flawed human in a lot of ways, and I got to the point where it's like the more I started talking about it, people would come up to me and they wouldn't make fun of me. They would actually embrace me, and they would thank me. And I now have, on a weekly basis, I have some well-known, famous person that calls me out, that not calls me out, that calls me mm-hmm. and says, I heard you talking about this stuff. What do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, like, addicted to porn. I have a daughter that is a heroin addict. I, you know, I mean, you name it. And I now find myself in this position of people are reaching out. And, you know, with the caveat that I'm not, you know, an, an expert in addiction recovery, I'm just some guy that has gone through my own shit. And I've happened to, you know, pick up a few things along the way. And so I just try to share. And so I realize more and more, the more that I share these stories and stuff, that if you have, if you have secrets that you're ashamed of, uh, find there's a difference between secrecy and privacy. Because if you share a secret with someone that really you don't have rapport with or doesn't understand it, it can and could be used against you, and they can manipulate you with it. So it's 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 you'd be very well served to find the community that we're talking about, twelve step or not. Find people that you can uh, share and you can disclose uh, safely with. Uh, secondly, if you are in active addiction, and you know, an addiction, there's many ways to define it. I've heard, but it's doing something you don't want to do or that you do want to do, and you're not able to stop. And it has bad consequences. Yeah. And in the beginning, addiction worked for me. Addiction oh, yeah. was a solution. That's how it got bad. Yeah. Because it worked that well. 
Exactly. You know, people are like, addiction is a problem. Yeah, but it's also a fucking great solution when you're in pain. And if you're in pain, there's nothing wrong with wanting to get out of the pain. It's just if, if you itch really bad, there's nothing wrong with wanting the itch to go away. It's the mechanism you use to scratch it. And when the scratching shreds your body and your soul and your spirit and your emotions and makes you incapable of having relationships or having a career, you know, that's horrible. And so finding a way out of this trap latch on to whatever you can that will give you hope if you're absolutely struggling and there are I had so many false starts there are so many times and I I am one of those fortunate ones that learned how to make business work where I could pay to go to therapy where I could you know I learned how to, to, to do business which is why I'm so adamant about teaching people how to run a successful business because you can do things with money that lack of money creates problems that if you have enough money to solve the problem you don't have a problem so once I learned how how to make money, then I had to deal with the real Joe, my right, feelings and right. all that. So so what I would say is that for, for purposes of timing, uh, put your recovery first. There's a saying that anything you put ahead of your recovery, you're going to lose. Yeah. And that means relate. If you, if you put a relationship, like if you're in a new relationship with a, a man or a woman or whatever, whatever you're, you know, gay, heterosexual, whatever, you, what, if you put the relationship ahead of your recovery, you're going to lose the relationship. Yeah. If you put your job ahead of the recovery, you're going to lose your job. And so that's a really hard thing to grasp. And so if you really want freedom, you know, the, this, this, this uh, gal made this painting for me which is a saying she said uh you know recovery didn't open up the uh gates of uh heaven to let me in but it opened up the gates of hell to let me out Mm. and you know that's what it is this is not an easy path uh, but there's two types of suffering as my friend dan sullivan says there's long term and there's short term you just need to decide which one you want you this this will be difficult and this will be challenging but the gifts on the other end the freedom the freedom that you went into addiction to try to pursue is never there that's like cotton candy it's a fake freedom yeah. it's enticing it's seductive it's amazing and when you're in it it's it's fun yeah. I mean, I had amazing times during times when I was high, when I was doing crazy stuff, but it left me with this pain and this void. And so the question, like Gabor Mate says, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. And if you really want the pain to go away, you know, put a, a, a percentage of your time into your recovery that you would put in your addiction and life will get better. And yeah, and beyond that... Uh, you know, there's so much more I would say, but that's what you're here for, Anna, to, for. to uh, t- well, no, also all your stuff, your books and everything. I mean, if people are finding this valuable, another part of recovery is just staying engaged in this conversation and helping others go out and freaking help others. When you, when you can be of service to other people that are suffering, that is the greatest way to make your suffering go away, mm-hmm. is to help others. You know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, but if you're in pain, go find someone who's in pain also and the mutual suffering and the bond that is there will help you get out of the suffering. And, and, and always, and, and no, it's not, it, you got you to, it's nutrition, it's the issues are in the tissues, it's bio, you know, exercise and yoga. I mean, there's so many things that help. So there's a lot of stuff, but just, you know, in, in every passing moment is another chance to turn it all around. Even if you feel like right now your, your life sucks, it, it doesn't. It, it, that's, that's something in your head that is saying that because there's many things that you can do for yourself and others that will just enhance your life in so many ways. Well, what a lovely extra. Did I make that word up? Sounds good. Uh, what? So, and people can find you online. Where? Yeah. Well, Joe Polish, uh, you know, dot com is my business stuff. You can link to everything that I do there. I have 
different podcasts online on business uh, for the addiction thing that we're working on. I'd love to have everybody uh, uh, watch the trailer at artistsforaddicts.com. Artistsforaddicts.com. And just please opt in and we'll just keep you posted. Um, you know, you, it's, it, yeah, I mean, anything that, that we can do to just get more people enrolled in this conversation, we want to change the global conversation about how people view addicts and hopefully make a dent in this global crisis. Well, Joe, that this has been fantastic. I truly may make the exception to nobody gets to come on twice. I think I should. Oh, I didn't even know you had that. I so yeah, that I've never said it out loud, but that yeah. was always my rule. Okay, thank you. This was After Party Pod with Anna David. Uh, you, if you like the podcast, review it, subscribe, and be sure to check out not only After Party Magazine but everything about your podcast.